You're listening to Harper Audio Presents, a podcast that brings you conversation and inspiration from your favorite authors, editors, and creators, giving you new perspectives on the world of books, culture, and the arts. We are part of the HarperCollins Presents network of podcasts. Yeah, I was just flying by the seat of my pants, really, and snatching things out of the air, out of my own psyche, whatever I was feeling and thinking, what I heard from people at a bar the night before, what happened to me at a bar the night before, um, all of it. Armistead Maupin is the author of the nine-volume Tales of the City series. His other books include Maybe the Moon and The Night Listener. Maupin was the 2012 recipient of the Lambda Literary Foundation's Pioneer Award, and he lives in San Francisco with his husband, the photographer Christopher Turner. Logical Family reflects on the profound impact those closest to Maupin have had on his life, and he shares his candid search for his logical family, the people he could call his own. Sooner or later, we have to venture beyond our biological family to find our logical one, the one that actually makes sense for us, he writes. We have to, if we are to live without squandering our lives. From his loving relationship with his palm-reading granny, who insisted Maupin was the reincarnation of her artistic bachelor cousin, Curtis, to an awkward conversation about girls with President Richard Nixon in the Oval Office, Maupin tells of the extraordinary individuals and situations that shaped him into one of the most influential writers of the last century. Maupin recalls his losses and life-changing experiences with humor and unflinching honesty, and brings to life flesh-and-blood characters as endearing and unforgettable as the vivid, fraught men and women who populate his enchanting novels. What emerges is an illuminating portrait of the man who depicted the liberation and evolution of America's queer community over the last four decades with honesty and compassion, and he inspired millions to claim their own lives. Logical Family is published by HarperCollins and is available wherever books, ebooks and audiobooks are sold. Be sure to look for the audiobook which includes bonus material. Welcome. Thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you for writing the book. I well that's nice to hear. Thank you very much. You know, I know your fiction. I I knew very little about you before I read this book. So I was so happy to learn more and I was so happy to like you so much. You never you kind of never know sometimes. I'm so happy you liked me cuz some of that early stuff <laughs> is very off-putting. Oh, I loved all the early stuff. I very much related to to your arc in terms of coming from that conservative family and my family my sister lives in north raleigh but my niece and nephew now live downtown and they live you know within a few blocks of oakwood cemetery and i'm and i go there in fact i'm going to be there this weekend so as you were describing those early years and the the, the cemetery and the names of the streets and everything i could picture it all in wow. my mind yeah yeah I'm, I'm imagining people in north carolina reading it and knowing some of those those right? locales um Oakwood Cemetery is still very much a drama in my life. I was exchanging a letter with my brother the other day because he wants, uh, he says, you, you, I know you don't want to be buried there. Is um, that true? Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Have you? It's you... not because I don't love my mother and father. And, right. But uh, I don't. It's not my home anymore, Raleigh, and that structure. My memoir is called Logical Family precisely because... I long ago figured out that uh, 
I, I actually coined the phrase in a in my novel, Michael Tolliver Lives, where he says, uh, Mrs. Madrigal says, uh, you have your biological family and you have the logical family, the one that that will love and accept you as you are. And I think most of us in modern times are living our lives that way. Whether we're gay or straight, we we make our way towards the people who will support us and understand us and uh, not judge. Exactly. And the way the way you put it is sooner or later we have to venture beyond our biological family to find our logical one, the one that actually makes sense for us. We have to if we are to live without squandering our lives. I think a lot of people are feeling that in this day and age. Uh, after the election of Trump, families are just divided right down the middle sometimes, since like it was during the Civil War. Mm. And because so many of the issues that are raised or the positions that have been taken uh, by this regime uh, are completely contrary to the happiness and well-being of of, of others in the of family, the, yeah. not just gay and lesbian, but yeah. women's rights, the whole thing. And families that don't see that and consider it more important that they vote for their political guy are, um, I don't I don't want to waste time with that. Right. And I always feel bad for people who do that old joke about, oh, God, I've got to go home for Christmas. And I think, yeah. Why do you have to do that? Exactly. If they're making life miserable for you, why are you doing that? Get Get some other people together who need your love and uh, from, whom, from whom you can receive love and stop doing it. Right. So as I said, I didn't know, I didn't know a lot about your life. I actually knew very little. And I was, I was surprised by sort of how Zelig-like it was, how, how many times there were influential people in your life that are, that are notable, notable people. So I wanted to sort of say a few names and, then, and have you... Um, tell us how how they influenced you. The first being a name that a lot of people I, I'm sure won't recognize, but Kathy Fiscus. Oh my goodness! Um, I had to Google her to get her name, but I remembered her <laughs> yeah. very well. Um, when I was about five years old, little Kathy Fiscus was um, a child who fell into a well in California, and it became the first um, publicized tragedy that was it was actually um we didn't have a television then but it was actually broadcast on television 1949 1949 um an inspiration for a number of movies and things where these media circuses build up around uh some terrible tragedy and i was heartsick that this little girl was somewhere down there at the bottom of the well and i wanted to send her a letter and my mother bless her heart uh sort of took dictation and, um, you know, I, I remember, I don't remember what I said in the letter, but I remembered how it would have been delivered yeah, or how I thought image, yeah. that they would drop it into the well and <laughs> it, would, it would flutter down into the arms of the, the hands of this little girl. And um, it was the first time I learned that my mother was going to great trouble to protect me and other members of the family from any kind of painful truth. Mm-hmm. And in that case, it was the fact that she had died not long after she'd fallen into the well. And yeah. once they dug her out, they knew that. And But she had, I don't even remember the outcome of it because my mother had somehow distracted me with something else. But Yeah, but you remember that, that yeah. writing the letter and the image that you evoke of, of it coming down through the well to be received by, by the girl. And as a, uh, as a writer, I, t- I see story 
see yeah. story structure. Right. So I saw that as tied in with the fact that I would eventually write a letter to my mother coming out and think in the same way, perhaps childish way, that I would solve everything if I made the letter earnest enough and pretty enough and strong enough. Well, let's talk about that. That was one of my questions, of course. Um, your, your, your letter to Mama, do you feel like that's sort of what you're best known for? I hope it is. In a lot of ways. I'm proudest of it. Yeah. I had, to, I had 45 minutes to write a coming out letter, basically, to my parents because I was becoming very public uh, as an activist. And I wanted them to know exactly what where I was on this and that I didn't want them to feel guilt because that's they went to that place. A mm. lot of parents do. Yeah. We did something wrong. Mm. Um, and uh, so I, you know, basically told them that uh, it was the great joy of my life to be who I was. And if they made me the way I am, then I wanted to thank them. And that letter was, of course, part of Tales of the City. But it was also, it, it's been used in a choral piece. T- tell us about the way the other ways that it's been Oh, the, that well, it's, the, it's, a, it's, a, it's a choral piece that's yeah. been all over the country performed by um, gay men's choruses uh, all over the world, really. Uh, my friend Ian McKellen read it at a, at a thing oh, called yeah. Letters Live that Benedict Cumberbatch puts on every year. Um, uh, Jake Shears and John Garden... And the musical version of Tales of the City made it into a very tender little um, I duet. I don't want to say ditty. It's just a, it's just the letter, a few, a little tiny piece of the letter, but delivered so beautifully. Um, what else? I mean, it's it, yeah. it has it has uh, survived. It sort it sort of seems like it is. It is you sort of in a poem version. You know, it's sort of everything that, you, that you've lived and that you stand for. And it, it's, it's as beautiful as all the, your longer works, but it's there in this very succinct package, it seems. There's a, um, there's a documentary coming out r- pretty much as we speak this year. In, Great. In, in, in uh, 2017. Um, in which uh, various of my friends read different oh. lines of oh. the letter. I do as well. And we have a, a snippet from the chorus. And, and at the end, of course, it says, Marianne sends her love. And Laura Linney, who played Marianne in the, in the <laughs> miniseries, uh, it reads that. Oh, that's lovely. I, can, I look forward to that. I love the way my life is sort of dovetailed in this way. That's beautiful. So, all right, so another figure in your life who you worked with at um, WRAL-TV in Raleigh, who you've, you you very deftly in the book, you, you describe being hired by this person, you describe a few interactions before identifying him, and it turns out to be uh, Jesse Helms. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about, and, and your family. I mean, there's a long history with Jesse Helms and your Jesse and your Helms family. showed up at my father's funeral 10 years ago. I missed him by 30 oh, minutes. I guess we should be happy about that. And, and <laughs> <laughs> I, apparently his his tombstone out at Oakwood Cemetery has been spray painted with a, oh, really? the F word. Oh, really? My brother was telling me in, in all horror. Uh, they had to take some flowers out and arrange them in front of the tombstone. I thought flowers will never take care of that because that's his legacy. People won't forget yeah, how exactly. that man behaved about on so many different issues. And it shocks me that North Carolinians still see him as somewhat of a hero since he did he did the 
When I was at Chapel Hill, he referred to UNC as the University of Negroes and Communists. That's what he did on the nightly television thing. More shockingly to me is the fact that I had been raised a young conservative, and I wasn't hearing this. Mm. Um, And I was expressing my conservative views in the student legislature at Chapel Hill. I was sort of a campus conservative. Yeah, you had a column. And And being a good liberal, you know, big, good liberal university, they said, well, this voice needs to be heard, too. So I was kind of celebrated as that. Um, And... uh, so, yeah, I was hired by Jesse because he'd read my column in the Daily Tar Heel, and and I always make the joke that uh, he told me that I was the hope of the future, and that it was <laughs> look at all that really out. the only thing you, he'd ever been right were. about. Indeed, you were. <laughs> and then you have a, an, an equally kind of crazy story about your interaction with Richard Nixon. Yeah, that was a, a yeah, that's a long one. But I ended up in the Oval Office yeah. with him. And he was, uh, there were 10 other uh, guys with me who were all Vietnam veterans. And he tried to talk about girls. He tried to be a guy, you know, and talk about these sexy little Vietnamese girls who ride along on their bicycles and like with the eyes, you know, the dresses. The, they are beautiful dresses. <laughs> the eyes blowing in the breeze like little butterflies. And I mean, the Vietnamese are not the most attractive people in the world, but those clothes really do something for them. He was totally creeping me out. Right. And and you realize later, you learn, learn later through one of his biographers that you were on, that the whole thing was recorded, correct? Yes. Yeah. Douglas Brinkley, the famous uh, historian. Brinkley, of course, yeah, our author. <laughs> he said, uh, I told him the story about being there and he got back to me and said, listen, I've listened to the tapes. And I said, the tapes? <laughs> he said, you know, the tapes. And, you know, my first reaction as a storyteller was, oh, my God, I've probably made that one a lot better over the years. And he said, uh, he said, you, you, uh, you actually didn't get it as, make it as funny as you normally make things. Yeah, because it was he, just so creepy. It was so creepy. Um, and my photograph was taken right there in front of that little alcove that you always see in the yeah, Oval Office yeah, with yeah. the shell top. Yep. Um, and uh, which is very revealing. I think somebody somebody should uh, show how those are decorated with each president. Uh, yeah, that would be that would be a good like triptych. To, yeah, because to Nixon all, yeah. or Pat, who must have done that decorating, had some sort of country club looking ceramic pheasants there. And um, Trump has put some gilded Wait. books up there, which I'm sure oh, are strictly ironic. decorative. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, and and when Elvis came in to be made a drug enforcement czar. <laughs> A lot of irony happened in that room, I'm it's, telling yeah, you. I'm telling you <laughs> he was standing there right in front of that same little thing. Now, another hugely influential person in your life is Anita Bryant. Well, I like a lot of, of men and women of my generation. We came out, you know, kicking and screaming from the closet because of this woman who started a campaign in South Florida to basically... Well, she said it was to protect the children from homosexuality. We were to sit down and shut up, basically. Same thing they say now. Right. Um, and uh, and I realized I, I was frustrated for about 10 minutes when I saw it come over the wires because I was working at the newspaper. Mm-hmm. And I, I couldn't believe the outrage mm-hmm. of this second-rate singer doing this pious thing about about that, about protecting children when— Everyone who's gay is, was a child at once, and 
knows exactly how how they got there. And it wasn't because some friendly homosexual came along and said, this is how you feel. Um, so I had a tool at my command. I had Tales of the City in the San Francisco Chronicle. And by the weirdest stroke of luck, I had... Oh, yeah. <laughs> established Michael Tolliver as the son of Florida orange growers. And Anita Bryant was the spokesperson for Florida orange juice. So I had Michael's mother write him and say that she'd joined this campaign and she was so proud that she had. And that's what forces yeah. him to write the letter, the letter back to Mama, home. yeah. So let's talk a little bit about your writing. It's so interesting the way Tales of the City came to be came to launch on May 24th, 1976. You were invited to create serialized fiction in a newspaper, something that it was as rare then as it is now. So tell us about how that happened. And then as I understand it, you you basically had to stockpile um, entries. You had how many, several weeks worth, and you sort of waited and waited, and, and then it got off. And then it was just like you had to deliver X amount of words on a schedule. I sure did. It was a, I was a nervous wreck. And you did that it. for how long? I did it for two years solid two with a two-week break in between for a tiny nervous breakdown. <laughs> and, and it was uh, like, oh, got to go. Yeah. got to get back to work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was just flying by the seat of my pants, really, and snatching things out of the air, out of my own psyche, Whatever I was feeling and thinking, what I heard from people at a bar the night before, what happened to me at a bar the night before, um, all of it. And readers who would write in and try to second guess me. And then I realized I could sort of dodge around that because I knew what they were thinking. And at one point you realize, oh my gosh, why didn't, you know, why didn't I plan this out a little bit more? Because it had gotten yeah, sort of yeah. so complex. And, and I think that that was at the point where you were revising lightly in order to deliver to HarperCollins the book. Is that right? Is there, a certain, there was a certain point where you realized, oh, you were, you were, there was I, a certain amount of editing that, that happened as the result of turning it into a book. Is that right? Uh, yeah. Um, I I had actually put a murder mystery in the middle of the thing. I got so nervous about them reading that I suddenly cast suspicion on everybody at Barbary Lane. And Harvey Ginsburg, who was the editor at HarperCollins, who had initially heard about the, the, the columns in the paper and asked me to send him Xeroxes, um, he looked at it and said, this will be reviewed as a bad murder mystery and not a mm. comedy of manners. Very wise thing to say. So that all had to be snatched out. But I had, uh, you know, several hundred yeah, chapters so, long, so yeah. I could pull them out. Yeah. And I I knew uh, Rock Hudson at that point. Yep. And, and he invited me to use his house in Palm Springs to go up there for the weekend and work on the that. So I went up with some friends. Uh, we were all running around in caftans. They were having fun. I was not. <laughs> You were working away. <laughs> I put those chapters down on the Rock's living room floor and rearranged them yeah. until, and made these amazing discoveries about structure. Interesting. Because I had these, um, you know, pieces. So, do, did you, can, even after you stopped after the two years and, and you, could, you could write at a sort of, quote, more normal pace, did it influence the way that you approached, you know, sort of, production and um, structure and all of that stuff? I'd like to say that I became, I became more and more of a perfectionist as the years wore on and a slower writer. Uh -huh. 
much, much slower. Yeah. Um, some, getting out a, a paragraph or two a day. Really? Yeah. Because I want them to be, I want to be really happy with the paragraph mm-hmm. before I let it go. I know that all the writer's manuals say, just spill it out and go Comment back and work out, on it yeah. later. But I've never been quite been able to do that. Um, I want to be impressed by my pretty prose before I go on. <laughs> to admire them and then turn the page. And to admire them. That's perfect. Now it's time to stop. Why do you think that there's not been more serialized fiction in newspapers? What do you think that's about? Well, there were about seven newspapers that copied Tales of the City. Mm. And none the of them year worked. after it happened. None of them were because they, okay. they grabbed some guy off the city desk. Got it. Yeah. I, the story was integral to my own life. I was yeah. coming out right. as I was writing the story. So it, I was passionate about it. Yeah. Uh, and so it was just kind of wacky. They were trying to do wacky tales. It's happening on the internet now. Right. In its own yeah. way. Yeah. People do it on the internet. But everything has changed. So first of all, I had their attention in San Francisco in the 1970s, mm-hmm. you got up in the morning and you looked at the Chronicle. You read Herb Cain, who had a column there. At one point, they suspected, um, before you were identified, they suspected that he was the author, which yeah. annoyed which the hell out of me. annoyed you. <laughs> <laughs> he, he'd already conquered his own yeah, kingdom in the best kind of way. He'd been writing for 40 years. So one last question, because I, I appreciate the time. N- writing about your own life and your very distinct you know sort of coming of age story this this beautiful story of becoming yourself how how has that experience been that's different from the I I know you were always writing that story but you were fictionalizing it now you're really talking about your mother and your father and your sister versus your brother and all of these really poignant things how did that feel it was tender yeah (laughs) you know it it I mean it it hit tender places, is what I'm trying to say. Um, I didn't. Uh, it's the hardest thing in the world when you're writing a memoir to own your own story and yeah. say, "I have a right to tell this the way I'm telling it because it's my story." And I feel at the age of 72 that I really have the right to explain myself along the way. And I realize that my my what I regard now as my sort of wasted, screwed up youth was leading towards something. Oh yeah. Uh, I was telling stories at a very early age, the basics of my life, the things that intrigued me, uh, were there and feeding me. It was interesting to see the way in which I'd been the same, too. You mm. know, I made myself go to sleep at night by telling myself s- serial stories yeah. when I was a kid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And really, who does that other than, other than a writer? Who's your, who, yeah, there was know, some instinct. <laughs> I had three that. different serials going. Yeah. One of them was Undersea, because I was watching all those Undersea yeah. movies that they had in the 50s. And there was another one that was kind of inspired by the Hardy Boys. But I love the idea of a story that just would keep on going. When I talked the newspaper into that, that was terrifying, because I had to basically lie and say, yes, I can write this every day, forever. Forever. I must say, that tenderness really comes through. That That's what I meant at the beginning when I said, thank you for doing it, and and... It was so. It was a really poignant and a really um, generous. It, you took a generous approach to both yourself and everyone that you encountered, and I think that that's that's rare. And it was. Ve- I very much appreciated it. Thank you very much. Thank you for having read it so well, because I can tell from the interview how 
I really, I really the nuances it. you've caught. I appreciate that. And I appreciate your writing, Logical Family, and sitting down with us. Thank you so very much. Totally my pleasure. Thanks for listening. We hope that you've enjoyed what you've heard, and if you have, that you'll subscribe. To do so, you just go to your podcast app, search for Harper Audio Presents, and click subscribe. That way, you'll never miss a conversation of publisher plus author plus microphone.